want to check, has anyone here never held a mustard seed in your hand? Never, ever held one in your hand. Well, we're going to pass some out, and all of you can take one if you want. This will become applicable later on, maybe in the lesson. We've got a couple of little bags, but we've got a, a busy seed person, too. So, You know, I was going to start with an inviting the Holy Spirit to interrupt me at any time, but unless I was the only one crying during worship, I think he's already been busy. So, yeah, way cool. I want to start with telling you about a scandal, and it's... Well, it's not exactly fresh news. It's, it's from the 1700s, but it's interesting anyway. Um, in 1715, a teenager and four of his friends started a club. But this teenager was kind of part of royalty, so this became an order of knights. It wasn't just, you know, any club. And it wasn't until 20 years later that the secret got out when a professional soldier stationed in Holland died in 1737, And those searching his belongings discovered an extraordinary secret, strange symbols and documents. And slowly it emerged that this ordinary Prussian officer had, in fact, been a member of an extraordinary secret order, reaching to the very highest echelons of society, right across Europe, even to the new world of America. Other members of the mysterious order included the King of Denmark, the Anglican Archbishop of Canterbury, and the Roman Catholic Archbishop of Paris, and I just can't see the two of them in anything, but okay. Um, The Secretary of State for Scotland, a military general and governor of the colony of Georgia, and even an 87-year-old Indian chief, Tomo Chichi. The leader of the group was a well-known German, now in his 30s, Count Sinzendorf of Saxony. And the existence of the Honorable Order of the Mustard Seed had finally come to light. The rumors spread like wildfire, and they got in a lot of trouble. And so reluctantly, in 1740, the Count went public with the rules, the relationships, and the history of his knightly order. The truth that emerged was not sinister, but it was truly extraordinary. Some of the most powerful people in contemporary society had banded together in a solemn covenant, not for selfish reasons, but rather to live selflessly for Jesus Christ. Remember last week we talked about living the selfless life? The aims of the order were to be true to Christ, kind to all people, and to spread the news of the gospel around the world. Is that not cool? These were people who understood their mission, and that's living a missional life. And last week we talked about our purpose, and let's see if if anybody's been listening these past few weeks. Um, We talked about our purpose, how it involves others. We talked about this in the context of living a balanced life where we're continually growing and developing as people, and that's moving forward, close, forward. As people and as a group, we're moving forward. And we're developing in our relationship with each other in the body of Christ, and that's growing inward, good. And in our relationship with God, and that's, and very good, with enthusiasm. And also in reaching people who are not yet in the body of Christ. Yes, outward. So here we go. Like Clara said, outward the sequel or living the missional life. And here's what I mean by living a missional life. And I'm taking this from an essay by Brian Russell, who, unlike me, actually has a Ph.D. in Bible. 
And he says a missional lifestyle involves intentional movement with the desire to encounter persons open to the gospel. And I like that idea of movement. You remember the Great Commission, it basically starts with go. That's movement, yes. And we talked last week about go outside where the people are. And go Spurs, go, yes. Wow, it's a prophetic team. No, let me not go there. An assumption behind this essay is that mission is not merely uh, an aspect of the church's existence. It's its essence. The church, he says, exists for the mission of God. And that term mission of God is that mission isn't just some activity. It's an attribute of God. To take one little slice of the pie, our God is a welcoming, embracing God, right? So we should be welcoming, embracing people who do stuff that makes people feel welcomed and embraced. So it's not just that we have, you know, this job to do or we have to do welcoming, embracing things. It's that's part of who we are because that's who God is. Okay? It's an attribute of God. So Dr. Russell says that our goal should be to live as faithful followers of Jesus Christ at all times and in all places. That a missional lifestyle means learning to transform our daily interactions with others into opportunities for planting God seeds of the kingdom. Any of, any of you still holding on to your little mustard seed? Is it hard to hang on to? No? That's easy? Wouldn't it be easier if it was like a ping pong ball or something? And see, that's, that's the thing with faith. If it stays real small, then you're always having to look for it. When you get in trouble or something happens, it's like, oh, where's that faith? I'll, I'll get back to the, the mustard seed. just occurred to me today. So... Whatever he highlights, God highlights to you today, he might bring to mind a person or he might bring to mind some reason you're using to not reach out to others. Um, Take that during the week and and see what the Bible has to say about it. I heard someone say that Sunday services aren't to get fed on the word. It's just the publishing of the menu for the week. And there you pick the things you want to eat, and then you go home and you actually devour the word, like we said last week. I like that analogy, menu. If you don't know how to find things in the Bible, then ask someone to show you how. That's not something to be ashamed about. You know, the things you don't know isn't something to be ashamed about. It's the things you refuse to learn that get to be a problem. And remember to let God do everything through you instead of striving to do it yourself. Let him show you what he wants you to work on and let him show you Um, how to learn uh, what the Bible says. One of the things we disciples are encouraged to do is to have the mind of Christ. And Jesus spent three years trying to help people understand God's way of thinking. Um, He usually did this through parables. 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 Never mind. You know what I mean. Repeatedly he said, the kingdom of God is like. And because he was primarily talking to first century Jews, he used analogies they could relate to. So you don't see him saying, The kingdom of God is like a factory. Or the kingdom of God is like a space shuttle. Or an automobile, because that would make no sense to them, right? Enough. Fortunately, he used stories from everyday life so we can still relate to them these many years later. But because we're not part of that culture, we usually miss something in the telling. So today I want to focus on just one of his pictures, analogies, or P-words. He spoke several times about heaven as a wedding feast. 
He even started his ministry with a miracle at a wedding feast. So I want you to put aside, since you're not first century Jews, all your preconceptions about what a wedding is. Pretend you have just landed on a foreign planet. You know nothing about how these aliens do weddings on this planet. And I'm your tour guide. Well, it's first century Israel. Oh, well, thank you, son. I, I got it from you. Okay, so we're on this planet. Let me tell you how the natives do weddings. Generally, matchmaking was done um, by the parents of the bride, prospective bride and groom. They agreed, my son, your daughter, this works. And it was really more of a business conversation because they had to agree on a bride price. And when I first heard of that, it really turned me off. It's like, what, this is a slave that's being sold? But that's really not the idea. Um, the, uh, the families were like a little micro-enterprise. They were their own little economic unit. And every person had a role to play. And when a girl got married, she would leave her family and go then work with the husband's family. So let's say she was a seamstress, and the family was used to having her sew things for them, and she also sewed things that they sold. Well, they no longer have the benefits of that. The groom's family's getting that. So it's kind of like if a sports team wants an athlete that has a contract with another team, they'll buy out the contract. That's basically what the bride price was. So, okay, so the parents decide on that, and the Jewish boy goes to the girl's house with a contract of marriage and the bride price, the money or what have you. And this is their first date. Isn't that romantic? Well, Jesus followed that tradition. If you think about it, he came from his father's house to where we live. He brought a contract. We call that the New Testament or New Covenant. It's a one-sided contract. And he paid the ultimate price. Right? So when he talks about the whole wedding thing, this, this would probably make a lot of sense to his peers, um, time peers. In the course of the evening, instead of getting down on one knee and bringing out this ring, what the guy would do was to pour a cup of wine and offer it to the girl. And if she accepts it, she's accepting his proposal. If she doesn't, then she's not. But I doubt too many of them rejected it, given the parents were involved. Well, think about... <laughs> think about how Jesus at the Last Supper poured a cup of wine and offered it to his friends and said, this is the cup of the new covenant, the new contract. He was proposing to them. See? See what I mean? Because it's not our culture, we don't quite get it, but that's what he was doing. Okay. If she picks up the cup and drinks it, the guy now stands up and says, I go to prepare a place for you. And he goes back to his dad's house, it could be in another town, and he starts building either a room attached to the house or maybe another house for his new family. And until that room is finished, he can't go get his bride and really make it official. They're considered married, but he's got to build this bridal chamber. In John 14, Jesus was talking about heaven. He said, I go there to prepare a place for you. That's bridegroom talk. Okay. Under the contract, the fiancé could come back at any time. Whenever he's done with the house, he can come back and get the bride. He doesn't have to tell him ahead of time. But it usually took about a year. And I thought, man, they were so slow builders. But part of the reason for this was to make sure the, the bride wasn't already pregnant when she got proposed to. See, so you wait a year, then you kind of know if anything's hatched or not, right? So, yeah. What can I tell you? Um... Now, the guy doesn't get to decide when the wedding chamber is done. That's his dad's job. 
And so he's building, and his friends will come by and say, well, when's the big date? And he'll say, only my father knows, because it's not until the dad said, okay, this is good enough, that, you know, the wedding date would happen. So I'm seeing nods like this is sounding familiar. When people would ask Jesus when he was coming back to take his bride, the church, to heaven, he'd say, only my father knows. Isn't that cool? Um, so finally the day comes, the groom's father says, okay, that's good enough. The marriage chamber is ready. And he would tell his son, go and get your brothers and your groomsmen and go get your bride. And that night, the groom and his friends would sneak over to the bride's house, which could be miles away, and they'd arrive around midnight to surprise her. If you want to read about this, it's uh, in the parable of the ten bridesmaids in Matthew 25. Now, because no one knew what date this would be, I mean, there were no emails, there were no cell phones, okay? It's just when Dad says it's ready. The prospective bride would sit in joyful anticipation by the window every night in case tonight's the night, sometimes for months. And because this is before streetlights and paved roads, she would need to have her lamp ready so she would be able to walk and see where she was walking. So it became the tradition that the bride would have her lamp filled with oil ready to go. And that's what she promised to do when she accepted the proposal. I'll be ready to go when you come back. Now, the custom was that when the group got relatively close to the house, the groom's friends would give out a shout to make sure she would be ready. It's time to put your sandals and your veil on, grab the lamp, and go. And she might be bringing some of the girls in the household with her, too, her bridesmaids, her sisters, anybody who had a lamp. Gets kidnapped, too. Now, what's interesting, there's scriptures that say that when Jesus comes back, he will do so with a shout and with the blowing of trumpets, which, again, is an echo of the groom's party coming to get the bride. So they go back to the groom's family's place, and there's the bridal chamber, and so they consummate the marriage. And the best man is standing outside the door waiting for a signal from the groom, which I find just mortifying. But that's because it's not my culture, right? So he gets a signal, and then he says to everybody, all right, it's done, we can party now. And that's when the reception or wedding banquet starts, and it could last as much as a week. Um, If you remember, John the Baptist in John chapter 3, verse 28, said, You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Christ, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and is now complete. So, since the father is the only one that really knows when the wedding is going to be, the father of the groom, who do you think selects the, uh, the guests? Yep, the father of the groom makes the list. Is that wild? I can just see brides today uh, <laughs> agreeing to that. Yeah. And there would be basically two invitations. One invitation goes out, hey, my son's going to get married. Will you come to the banquet? I need a head, ta- head count, right? So you RSVP. And then there would be a second invitation. Okay, the deed is done. Now's the time. Now come. You know, we're, we're getting the food barbecued. Now come and we're going to have the party. So there's two invitations. It was considered really, really rude if you said, yes, I'm coming to the party with the first invitation and then just didn't show up. Or if you showed up and you were just, you know, all dirty in your gardening clothes, you know, that, 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 was, that was not very respectful. We'll, we'll get to why that's important in a second. 
there was a Jewish rabbi who lived just a little bit after Jesus. And in one of his teachings, he said, This world is like a vestibule before the world to come. Prepare yourself in the vestibule for a meeting in the banquet hall. That was Rabbi Jacob. And I, I see this little speck of eternity that we call my life on earth as the time for me to get cleaned up and get dressed and find something to bring as a gift when I go to the big party in the sky. And that matches this rabbi's teaching. Um, there was another rabbi, and he was just a few years younger than, than Jesus, really a contemporary, Rabbi Johanan ben Sakai, who talked about a king who summoned his servants to a banquet but did not set a time for them. And so some of them took it seriously and some of them didn't. Um, suddenly the king summoned his servants. The attentive gathered before him all dressed up, while the foolish gathered before him all soiled. The king was pleased with the attentive, but angry with the foolish. He said, let those who are dressed up for the banquet sit, eat, and drink, but let those who did not dress for this banquet stand and watch. Which sounds kind of rough, except that, remember I said it was the bridegroom's father that was in charge of the wedding? He's paying for everything in the wedding. Well, if it's a royal wedding or a real wealthy family, one of the things he's paying for is for each guest, designer duds the special coat, a wedding garment, that you put on over your clothes when you show up. One of the things that did was that then you could tell who was invited to the party. You couldn't very well crash the party if you didn't get your, your coat. Um, plus, everybody looked nice. And, you know, given some people fashions, people's fashion choices, I'm thinking, anyway, it's just a thought, you know. It's biblical. It would be considered a great insult to the father of the groom if he paid for this garment and you didn't put it on. Okay. And in Galatians 3.27, it says, All of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. When God looks at us at that big party, the wedding of the Lamb, it's called, he's looking for us to be wearing Christ, just like the bridegroom's father was looking for the, you know, whatever designer dress he, he had gotten. You'll find the story of um, the wedding feast in Luke 14, also in Matthew 22, and I'm going to read bits and pieces of it. Um, Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered, and everything is ready. Now, mind you, they had no refrigerators. Okay, the food like needs to be eaten now. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention. They made excuses. They went off. Some of them even killed the servants. So the king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. Go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So they went out and got everybody they could find, both good and bad, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. Now, it says they invited everyone they could find, so there's no way this guy could have crashed a party because everyone was invited. But yet he didn't have this garment on that had been provided to all the guests. So the king says, "Um, friend, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. The king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. So it sounds like that wedding garment thing is is probably kind of important. 
Well, there's, there's been discussion about what that represents throughout the centuries. Um, Augustine said it was charity. Luther said it was faith. And Calvin said, not, not that Calvin. No, thank you. Calvin said it was good works, which sounds to me like it's all kind of the same thing. I mean, charity and good works, and then faith without works is dead. So it sounds like they're all talking about the same thing. So I like John Wesley, who said the wedding garment is the righteousness of Christ, first imputed, then implanted. Righteousness refers to being just, to doing the right thing, to being blameless. Imputed is when you attribute something to somebody else. So, for example, let's say I own a restaurant, and my employees are really, really rude to all the customers. Well, they might say that I don't appreciate my customers, but I get credit or blame for whatever my employees did. Right? So we become Christians, and God says he's righteous because of the righteousness of Christ. We get credit for that. right? But then it's implanted, and implanted means deeply rooted and established like a habit you've had since childhood. It becomes who you are. First you got credit for it, now it becomes who you are. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Become means be made into. It's the word you use to say the seed becomes the tree. Okay, That's what we grow into. And when you think about your mustard seed, it's used in cooking and such, but really the purpose of a mustard seed is to grow into a tree, a big tree. It's supposed to grow. If it doesn't grow, it means you haven't planted it or watered it. And those seeds I passed out are 25 years old. As you can see, they've not been very fruitful. The wedding uh, garment... I think it's best interpreted as being a picture of good works, and this is most clearly seen in the description of the marriage of the Lamb in Revelation 16. And I'm going to read from the message uh, paraphrase here, pieces here and there. Starting in verse 6, Then I heard the sound of massed choirs, the sound of a mighty cataract or waterfall, the sound of strong thunder. The marriage of the Lamb has come. His wife has made herself ready. She was given a bridal gown of bright and shining linen. The linen is the righteousness of the saints. And what I like to to think of it as is when I'm doing good stuff because I love God and that's who I've become, it's like a little thread that's being woven into the bridal gown of the bride, the church. I like that. The angel said to me, write this, bite it to the wedding supper of the Lamb. These are the true words of God. And then you see Jesus appearing. Then I saw heaven open, and oh, a white horse and its rider. He is dressed in a robe soaked with blood, and he is addressed as word of God. That would be Jesus. Um, Beginning of the Gospel of John, it tells us that in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and it's talking about Jesus. And it says, the armies of heaven, mounted on white horses and dressed in dazzling white linen, follow him. And, you know, they don't tell us what that linen is, but I'm thinking if dazzling white linen is the bride's gown, then and the armies are also dressed in this, you know, I don't know. Might be a connection. But the point to notice is the contrast between the bride who's made herself ready 
and the guy in Matthew 22 that was given a garment and didn't even put it on? Okay, so what does this have anything to do with our purpose and our mission and specifically with your purpose? What characters do we play in this story? And we handed out little note pages, but there's also, just for fun, a little playbill and, you know, cast of characters. Just because I had to get creative. But who are we in this story? And I'm not trying to do a seminary-level discourse on end-time doctrines here, okay? So don't rebuke me for getting it all wrong. I'm just using a story at the simplest level possible. I think it's obvious God is the father of the groom. Jesus is the groom. And then what about us? Could you see us maybe being the church, the bride? Could you see us maybe being the friends of the groom? How about the invited guests? And one way to look at it is that we kind of play different roles at different times in our lives. Um, And for us, we're only experiencing one thing at a time. But God is in your past where you accepted Christ, and maybe then you were more like an invited guest. Um, He's in your present, and he's in your future where we'll be the bride. He's already there, but we're only here. So what part are we playing today? Well, for those of us who have accepted Christ as king, I would say we're the servants. And we go around life not only inviting people to the party, but also helping them get dressed, helping them get ready. And we need to take this role seriously. Um, This isn't a take it or leave it thing. This is an order. And and I think because Christianity is, is something you volunteer for, you accept, I think we have a real lackadaisical attitude. But what it's like is like our army right now. We still have a volunteer army. People aren't getting drafted and forced to serve. But once you enlist, you follow the orders. You don't get to say, oh, I don't like to do that part of it. Or, no, you follow the orders. You do what you're told to do. So loving people isn't optional. I don't, I don't care how nasty they are to you. Jesus had to die for us to get to work this volunteer gig. Okay. So that's how serious this is. Introducing people to Jesus isn't optional. Inviting them to the party is not optional. And it's not optional to help each other get dressed by putting on Christ, by incorporating into our lives the righteous acts that make up the bride's dress. So what does that look like? Let me tell you what it doesn't look like. Living a missional life doesn't mean that you ask every person you meet, do you know Jesus, you sinner? It means, though, that every person you meet, when you stick your hand out to say, hi, my name is, what's going through your mind is, is this the first time he's meeting Jesus? Because Jesus lives in you, you live in him. If the person's meeting you, they should be meeting Jesus, unless you're really, really, really getting in the way. Okay? And then you take the relationship from there. So as you're thinking about something that you might be able to do differently this week that would involve reaching out, First, ask God to create opportunities. Um, Pray that the people you come near at work or at school or wherever you are are the people that he wants to impact through you and that he would create a way in. Um, When I was a young Christian, I was a military wife who was often stuck at home with no car and two little kids, a baby and a toddler. And so I wanted to introduce people to Jesus, but I wasn't necessarily around a whole lot of people besides the two little ones. And so I asked God for the opportunity. I said, God, if you will bring someone to me, then I'll get to know them, 
and I'll introduce them to you. And coming from an introvert, that was, that was pretty big for me. But God took me up on it. Yeah. And what happened was, um, one day, the baby was sleeping. The toddler, who was Rick, he was about two and a half, and I were out in the yard. That was him. <laughs> he grew. Much like the appropriate purpose for a seed is to grow and grow. Anyway. Yeah, I need to stop growing too, son, in, in some ways. Yeah. Growing in self-control, though. That Anyway. So I'm out in the yard with this two-and-a-half-year-old. And here comes this lady walking down the sidewalk. She's extremely pregnant, so she's not walking very fast. And she's got a little boy that's right about his age and his size. And they see each other, and they run towards each other. They meet in the middle of the lawn. They throw their arms around each other, and they're instant best friends. They were inseparable. His name was TJ. I don't suppose you remember TJ, but I have pictures. So here God brought someone to me. So I developed a friendship. She lived a few doors down, got to know um, their family. And at that point, we were hosting a Tuesday night Bible study at our home. And that was a lot like the community groups we do here. And so um, they started coming to our Tuesday night Bible study, and eventually they accepted Christ, her and her husband both. And I got to be a part of that just because I was open to the assignment. And remember that story because something's going to come up in a few minutes. Okay, here's what happened to another guy who prayed for an opportunity. His name is Prasad, and he lives right in the middle of India where there's only like 1% Christians, 95% of the people are Hindus. And he somehow got converted and went off to Bible college. And I got a little article about him. His whole family turned against him when he received Christ. They tried to force him to deny his new faith. And when he refused, they kicked him out of the family. But now it's time for his first Christmas break from college. And he's going back home. And he's hoping to share the love of Christ in his village during his Christmas break. And knowing he was coming, the villagers planned a meeting to pressure him into denying Christ. This happened just fairly recently. On the given day, about 700 people gathered with plans to beat him and excommunicate him and his family from the village if he refused to turn his back on Christ. They they summoned him before the village council and the crowd, and they asked him, Why did you leave your gods and goddesses? They demanded his answer and demanded that he bow before their holy book, Ramayana, which they believe is a physical representation of one of their gods. Well, of course, he he doesn't uh, comply with those demands, and they get really angry. But he asked the crowd a question. In the Ramayana, the, the holy book, there's a saying, those who know three letters of love are wise. And he asked them, does anybody know what the three letters of love are? And nobody can answer. And so he reminds them that in Hindi, the word truth is spelled with three letters. And he explains from the Bible that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And he shares how that truth would set them free, that Jesus alone can save, and he would never leave them. The crowd listened in astonishment and gratefulness. Instead of carrying out their plans, they asked him to share more about Jesus during his school break. Not wild. He made himself available. So, repeating something I said last week, remember that you were created on purpose, and you were created for a purpose, And that purpose involves others, so that means you need to reach out to them. You need to take the initiative. Whenever you see signs that something is happening in someone's life where Jesus might want to minister to that, you need to reach out. 
and often you have to reach out first before they do just to get a clue of what's going on um, in the fifth chapter of John we're told about Jesus going to Jerusalem for a Jewish festival and going to a pool where there were a lot of little porches where sick people laid because what would happen at that pool is that every once in a while an angel would show up and stir the water and if you were the first lucky contestant to get in you got healed so all these sick people are laying there waiting for their chance and he sees a certain man who's been um, suffering with some serious illness for 38 years. And he asked him, do you want to get well? And the invalid answered, sir, I have nobody when the water is moving to put me into the pool. But while I'm trying to come into it myself, somebody else steps down ahead of me. And so Jesus goes ahead and heals him. But I wonder how many people we walk by each day that have nobody to help them get in the pool. You know? And... And, and water is, is a strong symbol when it comes to Jesus' life. In John 7, he says, He who believes in me, who cleaves to and trusts in and relies on me, as the scripture has said, from his innermost being shall flow continuously springs and rivers of living water. And he was speaking here of the Spirit. That's from the Amplified. And what he said, as the scripture says, he was referring to at least four scriptures in the book of Isaiah that use water as a metaphor for salvation, that use thirst as a metaphor for what, when your soul feels like it needs something, your spirit is needing something, well, it's needing salvation. And so he said that for us, out of our innermost being, would flow continuously springs and rivers of living water. So oozing out of us, gushing out of us, should be the stuff that quenches people's spiritual thirst. And I'll read to you from Isaiah, it's it's chapter 55 of the message, and it starts with an interesting word, it's an expression of pity, kind of like when we say, aww, aww, all who are thirsty, come to the water, are you penniless, come anyway, everything's free, why do you spend your money on junk food, your hard-earned cash on cotton candy, listen to me, listen well, eat only the best, fill yourself with, uh uh-oh, Hmm. Oh, well. Fill yourself, yes, with the stuff I give, living water. I'm missing part of a page. And he, and he goes on to tell them that he is making the same covenant that, with them that he made with David. Sure, solid, enduring love. I set him up as a witness to the nations, made him a prince and leader of the nations, and now I'm doing it to you. Remember the kid running across the lawn towards Rick? You'll summon nations, that means people or people groups. You'll summon nations you've never heard of, and nations who've never heard of you will come running to you. Because of me, your God, because the Holy of Israel has honored you. And later it says, so you'll go out in joy. You'll be led into a whole and complete life. The mountains and hills will lead the parade, bursting with song. All the trees of the forest will join the procession, exuberant with applause. No more thistles, but giant sequoias. No more thorn bushes, but stately pines. And I think he's talking about us. I think we're not going to be thorn bushes that just, you know, say sarcastic little things to people all day. We're going to be stately pines, monuments to me, to God, living and lasting evidence of God. That's our purpose. That's what we're growing into. And so we need to reach out. And we're going to have a little time here to... um, 
to get in touch with what God's saying. And afterwards, we're going to have a little exercise. Um, so go ahead and play the video. I don't know who or what God brought to mind for you. The word reconciliation really stuck out to me. Um, and also when I said someone's reaching out for a bottle. Some people reach out for a bottle until the day they reach out for a gun. 
So anybody you know who is still alive, like it said, it's not too late. And what I'd like us to do is to turn to someone and share what it was that God brought to mind for you. And when you hear that from the other person, remember Jesus said if we had faith as big as a mustard seed, we could do anything. I want you to tell them, I have faith that you'll be able to reconcile with that person or that you'll be able to reach out to that person. I have faith that God will help you find a way to get past being an introvert who's stuck at home with no car. Whatever the situation is, just share your faith with each other. And we'll do that just for a few minutes. Okay, if you're praying for each other and you need to keep doing that, you go right ahead. Um, We're going to conclude the service with that. I'm going to ask any ministry leaders or community group leaders who are available to come up front. Um, If any of you have any additional prayer needs, we'd love to pray for you. It doesn't have to be related to this topic. So be blessed.